0: Dr. Wiley, should I start this podcast? Hello, and welcome to Small Findings. I'm Jim Kang, an artist and software developer. I process a lot of information, just like everyone else. Each week, I pick a few things out of that tide of information to understand at least well enough to take notes. On this podcast, I share those things with you. This week, we have... Another update to the struggle of deploying raw pizza to the oven. This chapter introduces parchment paper technology. How restaurants, particularly smaller restaurants, are affected by the practices of internet-focused delivery companies like Grubhub and Postmates. And finally, we have the surprising power of puffy cats. A note about the audio quality this week. I record this podcast on a phone. I try to do it in the room in the apartment with the best acoustics. Through experimentation, I've determined that this is, strangely, the kitchen. This week, in order to get this podcast done on time, I've recorded even though the dishwasher was on, and you could kind of hear it sometimes. Also, I usually hold the phone in my hand, but I was lax this week about not moving it around. so. There's some acoustic perspective shifting, which might be a little distracting. However, I don't think any of this will hurt your ears at least. But please email me at smallfindings at and let me know if it does. I'll do better next week about the moving around, though the dishwasher thing might happen again. Okay, on to the findings. <laughs> Once again, this Saturday, I made pizza. In episode four, I talked about the stress of getting raw pizza into the oven without ruining it. The super peel was recommended to me by a couple of friends as a way to avoid that stress. I wasn't able to get a hold of the super peel in a way that I was comfortable with. However, my friend Fred tipped me off to a technique using parchment paper which we happen to have around, and we use it for baking cookies. In case you are also confused by the name, parchment paper is not parchment. Parchment is a precursor to paper that was apparently made from animal skins. I pretty much think of it as the cheap paper from D&D. Like, usually you could buy, well, like the second edition player's handbook they have, Parchment, papyrus, and paper. I think parchment is the cheapest of them. But to me, it seems like it would be really expensive. It's the lowest tech version of paper, but uh, it's the most resource intensive. Wikipedia says that parchment paper is named that way because it resembles parchment. I don't know about that, but I do suppose they are both brown. Parchment paper, is made by running sheets of paper pulp through sulfuric acid, which gelatinizes it. As a result, it becomes heat resistant, and its surface becomes hard to stick to. So this is what I did. To support the pizza, I put a pizza peel and a cutting board next to each other. I needed two surfaces because I made the crust larger than I had planned, and it didn't fit on just the pizza peel alone. Then I put a sheet of parchment paper over the combined surfaces. Next, I put the raw crust on the parchment paper. Some of it stuck out beyond the limits of the paper, but that was okay. Finally, I assembled the pizza on the crust, which was on the paper, which was on the peel and the cutting board. When it came time to deploy the pizza to the oven, I slid the parchment paper with the pizza on top of it Off the peel and cutting board, and onto the baking steel, the paper slid easily off the surfaces, and the pizza retained its shape while on the paper. I was a little worried about doing this because my intuition is that parchment paper is a kind of paper, and the baking steel is extremely hot, so I thought the paper could combust. But Cooks Illustrated says that if you take parchment paper beyond its recommended limit of 450 degrees Fahrenheit, it can darken and turn brittle, but it will not burn, and it will not release noxious substances. And indeed it didn't. I let the pizza cook for two minutes to get firm, then lifted the edge of the pizza off of the paper using the peel. I was then able to use a fork, to lift the edge of the paper up off of the baking steel. So now the edge of the pizza is off the paper and the, paper, the edge of the paper is off the baking steel. And then I was able to grab the paper and easily slide it out from under the pizza. It might've helped that uh, some of the pizza was stuck directly to the steel at the far end because it had jutted off the um, parchment paper. So now the paper is off. The pizza was directly on the steel, achieving maximum crispiness. In another five minutes, it was done. I had achieved stress-free pizza making at last. The pizza lacked some cheese because we ran out of mozzarella. Cat peeled apart a string cheese to get a little bit more and we mostly got it covered. It was also a little thinner than I wanted because I got it bigger than I expected at least uh, from a top-down perspective. This was a surprise because I'm usually not able to get it stretched out as much as I'd like. It's usually too thick. I think I was able to really stretch it out because I followed the advice in Mark Bittman's How to Cook Everything, which is to let the crust relax between stretchings and rollings. So um, I rolled it out, I let it sit for 10 minutes, I rolled it out some more, let it sit for 10 minutes, and then I stretched it out by hand, and it got really thin. Ultimately though, it was very satisfying. A couple tangentially related small findings. Everything smelled way better while the pizza was cooking this time. And that is because I had actually bothered to clean out the oven beforehand. Burn crud stuck to the inside of your oven can still burn some more the next time you cook, and that smells bad. This is probably one of those basic findings that everyone else has already found out, but you should clean your oven once in a while. Another thing I found out is that our crushed red pepper flakes have a Best Buy date of June 6, 2010. They are still spicy though. On Friday, Universal Hub reported that the Boston City Council asked delivery companies to stop charging fees to restaurants that were so high that they would put the restaurants out of business. Before Friday, I had no idea how much these services actually charged. I had an idea of how much they charged consumers, but I had no idea how much they charged restaurants. Of late, I've only ordered directly from restaurants. I haven't used third-party delivery services quite a while. The last one of the delivery services I used was Foodler, which was apparently acquired by Grubhub in May of 2017. However, early in the day, I had listened to an episode of The Daily about a restaurant that was deciding whether or not to reopen. The restaurant owner they interviewed mentioned that they weren't able to make enough to survive on par- third party delivery services because Uber Eats takes 25 to 30% of the order, according to her, and that left her restaurant with no profit. At the Boston City Council hearing, a restaurant owner spoke about a Grubhub promotion called Support for Super. I don't know exactly what that means, but uh, maybe it's something having to do with the Super Bowl. In this promotion, customers could get $10 off every order of at least $30 if they made the order between 5 and 9 PM. That is quite the discount. How does Grubhub pull great deals like that off? Well, it turns out that Grubhub simply charged the restaurants $10 for each of those orders. A look at uh, Grubhub's Learning Center website tells us that typically they charge 20% for marketing, 10% for delivery, 3.05% plus 30 cents for processing. So. When someone pays for $30 of food before taxes, Grubhub gets $10.22 and the restaurant gets $19.78. So, if that food actually costs $15 to make, then all they've done to make uh, they've then they've done all that to make $5. It seems unlikely that that's sustainable. In fact, there's a recent lawsuit against the delivery services It states that as a result of this huge take, average restaurant profits range between 3% to 9% of revenue. According to their website, Uber Eats does charge 30%. And this is uh, in line with what the restaurant owner in the Daily Story was talking about. You also have to pay a $350 activation fee, which gets you a tablet. I wasn't able to find definitively how much DoorDash charges restaurants. Uh, Just a bunch of websites noting that DoorDash is coy about how much they charge. Postmates also does not state publicly how much they charge. I found an article from the Eater website. It was uh, from five years ago, and it said that it was 10 to 20%. And that was five years ago again. That article was primarily about restaurants not liking that Postmates would not ask for their consent when delivering from them. Postmates defines itself as a service for the customer, not for the restaurant. And therefore, it, will, it would deliver from any restaurant even if the restaurant did not want its food to be delivered. And a restaurant may not want to deliver food for, for many reasons. You know, it might not be able to handle the volume. It might not feel that its food is good when delivered. And certainly there is a perspective from which uh, Postmates stance is valid if you uh, put certain qualifications on it. So if I was to pay a guy $5 to pick me up some food from Dave's Fresh Pasta, that's between me and the guy, and there shouldn't be a way for Dave's Fresh Pasta to stop that. However, Postmates went as far as to post menus from restaurants on their site. And when owners called to complain that those uh, menus were incorrect, they told them to call a helpline. The restaurant quoted in the article said that two months after they called, they still had incorrect menus on their website. An executive at Postmates gave some kind of excuse about being a startup and not having enough resources. They also refused to unlist restaurants from their website, uh, saying that it was technically impossible. I don't know if Postmates does this now, but Councilor Matt O'Malley brought up a similar issue at the city council meeting. He said that delivery site, uh, services, the delivery services of today, create, quote, ghost websites, end quote, for restaurants that don't have contracts with them in order to grab their business. Grubhub does, in fact, create fake websites for restaurants. Grubhub registers domains that are very similar to the restaurant's real domain names. In this Grub Street article I read, which I'll link in the show notes, there's an example given in which a restaurant has a real domain, www.mollyhatchetssubshop.com. And there's corresponding fake Grubhub domains like www.mollyhatchetsubshopdaytonabeach.com. So once they have that domain, they put a site there that uses the restaurant's real logo, and then they drop in a phone number. But that phone number is not the restaurant's real number. It's a Grubhub phone number. When a customer calls that number, they enter a phone tree that does not mention Grubhub at all. And if they choose uh, the choice to order food, then they get connected to the restaurant's actual phone number. What Grubhub used to do is charge the restaurant every time that happened, no matter what happened with the call. After a lot of complaints, they started charging only if uh, the call resulted in an order. But the amount they charge varies uh, depending on some algorithm that Grubhub doesn't disclose. Thanks to the restaurant's disclosures, though, we can know what the results of that algorithm are. In a Buzzfeed article, also from Friday, a pizzeria reported being charged $7.45 by Grubhub from an order uh, for an order from a customer that actually thought they were calling the restaurant directly. Uh, a cafe reported being charged $6.42 for an order for a single coffee. The reason people often think they are calling it the real restaurant number rather than the Grubhub number is Yelp lists the Grubhub numbers rather than the real restaurant numbers. And because Grubhub does some pretty aggressive SEO, often having multiple domain names for every one real restaurant domain name, the Grubhub numbers often appear ahead of the real restaurant numbers in Google search results. In response to criticism, Grubhub CEO struck back by saying that it was all in the terms of service. He said that uh, he also said that they stopped automatically creating websites in twenty eighteen. So here I think he meant creating websites without covering themselves via the contract, because uh, in that same defense. He said that restaurants explicitly agree to website creation. Now in the present day, though, uh, at this city council meeting, Amy Healy, who is a director of public affairs at Grubhub, uh, acknowledged that Grubhub does create fake sites and fake sites for restaurants that do not have a contract with them. So if they don't have a contract with them, uh, they cannot have agreed to any Grubhub terms. Uh, the way that, you know, many restaurants uh, unwittingly allowed Grubhub to legally create all these fake websites. So this director of public affairs agreed that the practice is distasteful, but she said that Grubhub needs to do it to keep up with competitors. And that's in line with a letter that Grubhub sent to its shareholders at the end of 2019, uh, much like Postmates, at the end of 2019, Grubhub started listing restaurants that don't have a contract with them. Here, the goal isn't to profit directly from the restaurants. They're not trying to hijack the phone numbers so that they can charge the restaurants for calls routed through their fake phone number. Instead, the idea uh, for all of these delivery services, not just Grubhub, it's to seem like they have a limitless catalog as big as the ones the other delivery services have. However, in these cases, they can't actually deliver some of the food they've listed. Sometimes customers order via the Grubhub site from the restaurants that Grubhub has listed against the restaurant's will. And sometimes the result is that nothing is actually delivered except an apology the, the experience, uh, according to one report, is you go to Grubhub, you order from that restaurant, Grubhub says, cool. And then an hour later, you get a text that says, sorry. So it seems that they'd rather ask for forgiveness than for permission, even with customers. In the meantime, they are, of course, still misrepresenting restaurants when they're doing this. Sometimes they go a little bit further than misrepresenting that a restaurant wants to work with Grubhub. I read about an incident in which maybe accidentally they misrepresented a well-known restaurant by mapping it to a ghost kitchen. Uh, Ghost kitchens, also sometimes called cloud kitchens, are these kitchens that only do delivery via these delivery services often without a permanent physical location. They're kind of like uh, fulfillment centers for um, delivery services like Grubhub and Postmates. In the article I read, Seamless, which is a property of Grubhub, listed a Michelin star Thai restaurant. And when people tried to order from that restaurant on Seamless, what actually fulfilled the order was a ghost kitchen. It was some sort of mobile kitchen that made Thai food, but also made Mexican food under a different listing on the delivery services. Many of these uh, delivery services practices predate the pandemic. They're getting more attention now because this is the only channel of revenue for many restaurants that cannot do their own delivery now. In response, New York City voted to cap delivery service fees to 15%, though that still leaves many of the delivery company's other practices unchecked. Back at the Boston City Council meeting, when a similar cap was discussed, the Grubhub official said that they'd challenge it in court. A small postscript to the delivery company findings. In some cases, the ghost kitchens intentionally misrepresent themselves on Grubhub. In Philadelphia, a person ordered from what she thought was a local business named Pasquale's Pizza and Wings. It turned out to be Chuck E. Cheese under a different name. Chuck E. Cheese is an American restaurant chain. Their facilities usually have games and small motorized rides as well as people in giant cartoon animal costumes. It is mostly for small children and anecdotally, it seems to be mostly for birthday parties for small children. In the Chuck E. Cheese Pantheon, Pasquale P. Pie Plate is the entertainment loving chef who co-founded Chuck E. Cheese restaurants along with Chuck E. Cheese. He appeared as early as 1977. If you liked hearing about Pasquale's slash Chuck E. Cheese, You might enjoy the Hot Garbage newsletter. It's a newsletter that's filled with all sorts of interesting links, uh, some of them news of the weird, like that, but also more serious topics. I followed it for a long time and I've been contributing in uh, the last few months or so. So I'll link it in the show notes. I learned something from our friends, Katie and Daniel, that challenges a long-standing belief I've had about a cat I knew a decade ago. On Friday, they disclose that one of their cats is unaffected by rain. Raindrops hitting her from an open window do not phase her. This is because she has extremely puffy fur and is thus called puff. The water never reaches her skin. Our cats, Bonus Cat and Dr. Wiley, are affected by water. The way we try to stop our cats from doing stuff like going on the counter or going in the sink is to spray them with water. Our sprayer produces a small damp mist, which does deter the cats to an extent. If Dr. Wiley is on the dining room table just hanging out, she'll get down if she's sprayed a few times. Bonus Cat, however, has become increasingly resistant to sprayings. This Wednesday, Bonus Cat got up on the table and started drinking leftover cereal milk. I sprayed him around 10 times. This had no effect whatsoever. I'll link a video of this in the show notes. When he's in the sink, however, you could turn on the faucet and he'll move. If he had a big puffy coat, however, he might be able to shrug that off as well. At least until we finally get our new faucet spray head so that we could have decent water pressure. The aforementioned cat that I now understand differently was named Dirty Puff. My partner Cat named him that because he had this puffy white fur that was really dirty. We encountered him in 2009. He was completely uninterested in people, unlike his friend, Bonus Cat, who used to live outside. Cat tossed them cold cuts, which Bonus Cat ate. Dirty Puff eschewed them completely, however, He is 100% committed to independent living. Dirty Puff's fur seemed ridiculous for a possibly feral cat. It seemed like it could only be a burden. We imagined it picking up all sorts of crud and getting stuck in things. It now occurs to me that the fur was actually a big advantage when it rained. Bonus Cat, though he's been living indoors for 11 years now, still fears thunderstorms. When there's lightning, (coughs) When there's lightning, he goes under the couch. Certainly, thunderstorms were unpleasant for Dirty Puff as well, but he was probably able to shake off lighter rains completely, much in the same way that present day Puff, the, the non dirty one, does at the window when it's raining. So, the fur is practical for outdoor survival. It looked ridiculous, but is actually kind of a cat armor. Thanks for listening. Have any findings you want to share? Have any comments you want to make? If so, email smallfindings at fastmail.com. See you next week. This week we have another update to the struggle of deploying raw pizza to the oven. Oh no, okay.